0: Good morning. I want to start with a story. It's one of my favorite stories. You have to forgive me. I like stories. My degree is actually in English. Um, This is one of my favorites. It has to do with, um, I've always been a fan of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson stories. And uh, I remember hearing this story once about Holmes and Watson And they're on a case, and this case leads them to a forest one evening. And after a hard day of working on this case and maybe a little bit too much to drink, they both decide that it's time to retire to their tent for the evening. So they crawl into their tent. And in the middle of the night, Holmes nudges Watson and says, Watson, I want you to look up at the night sky Tell me, what do you deduce? Watson, eager to prove himself in front of his mentor, says, Well, astronomically, it tells me that there are probably millions of galaxies and billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that the planet Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is 15 minutes past 3 in the morning. Theologically, I deduce that God is very great and we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I think that tomorrow we're going to have some good weather. What do you think it means, Holmes? Sherlock turns and looks at him and says, "Watson, you idiot! Someone stole our tent." <laughs> so today, I've, you never heard me speak before, but my prayer was is that you don't start to relate me with Watson there, and I'm, I'm going around and around. And you're thinking, "What in the world is the point?" Which Jim already told me that if that starts to happen, he can cut me off here on my mic. (laughs) So, you have full permission if I pull a Watson there. So, in an effort to keep things a little bit simple and hopefully not fall into that trap, today we're looking at the second psalm, Psalm 2. And my goal is to let let this psalm answer a very simple question for us namely, how are we supposed to live in a wicked world? How are we as Christians expected to live in a wicked world? And I think there are three different things this psalm teaches us. The first way, the first thing we are to do when living in a wicked world is this. Be wary of the counsel of the wicked. Be wary of the counsel of the wicked. Psalm 2, first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me for a moment? Father, thank You for the opportunity to learn from Your Word. Thank you, Father, because the effectiveness of your word does not depend on good speech. It doesn't depend on great eloquence. But it depends on you, O Spirit, opening up our hearts and our minds and our ears to receive what you would have us receive. Teach us today, Father, how we are to live in this wicked world. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, in verse 2 here we see wicked kings and rulers of the earth, and they're doing something interesting. We read that they are taking counsel together. They take counsel together. That's interesting because we have seen that action of the wicked, that they're taking counsel together already. It happened in the very first Psalm, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And so right off the bat when we're reading Psalm 2, we already see that in some way these psalms are connected to each other. What's the significance of that? Well, I think there's several things that are significant about it. But what I want to focus on today is these psalms appear to be like sister psalms. They're highlighting two different aspects. Psalm 1 is describing to us what the counsel of the righteous is. And Psalm 2 is going to describe to us what the counsel of the wicked is. So let's look at Psalm 1 first. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law or the counsel of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, this word law here, the word Torah, generally refers to all of God's revealed instruction for us, what we are to do or not do. But we have to understand that in the Old Testament, that the law of God was divided or can be divided into three different categories. In the Old Testament, the first division of the law is often called the ceremonial law of God. This is the law that had to do, obviously, with the ceremonies that Israel was given, things such as cleanliness or uncleanliness. Uh, the rites of the priesthood and the uh, ceremonial feasts that Israel participated in. These are laws that governed Israel's ceremonies. But then the second division of the law is often called the judicial law of God. And this is the law that directed Israel in their day-to-day lives as a nation or a political body. So for us, in our context, judicial law is something like The speed limit, going up the road, or the fact that you have to pay taxes. Some of us wonder if that should be a law, but it is. Nevertheless, this is judicial law that governs our nation. But besides the ceremonial law and besides the judicial law, there is a third division that the Old Testament holds up in a higher regard than either of the other two. And this law is typically called the moral law of God. And it's called the moral law of God because it tells us what is right or wrong at all times, in all scenarios, regardless of where you live or what culture you are in. And we find this law in the Ten Commandments. Now, I said that in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments are given a higher place of honor than the ceremonial or the judicial law. And there are several ways the Old Testament does this, but a couple of quick ones. Uh, for example, only the Ten Commandments were etched in stone. Only the Ten Commandments, according to the Old Testament, were etched in stone by the very finger of God. Only the Ten Commandments were placed in the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place where the very presence of God was. And so, in several ways, the Old Testament suggests to us that this moral law is to be revered in a way that is higher than ceremony or higher than the law that dictates Israel's political body. Now, I'm saying all of that to say this. If you are an Old Testament Israelite or an Old Testament psalmist, If you use the word law, or if you hear the word law, you could never hear that word without thinking about the Ten Commandments. It would be the first thing that comes to your mind. It's the highest form of the law. And so I think it's a fair translation in Psalm 1 to translate it this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, he meditates day and night. So, we might be tempted to think then that the psalmist is saying to us, Blessed is the man who delights in what God tells him to do day and night. What God commands him to do day and night. Because obviously the Ten Commandments are commandments. They tell us what to do. So, that's true. The psalmist is delighting in the fact, and he is delighting in what God is commanding him to do. Do this, don't do that. But, we also need to recognize that the Ten Commandments are not just commandments, that is, they tell us what to do. They are equally confessions. They tell us how to think. As Reformed people, we love to talk about confessions, right? Well, they are confessions. For example, you shall not commit adultery. That's pretty straightforward as a commandment, right? (laughs) Here's a clear, don't do this. But there is very clearly implied inside of that a confession, a way you're supposed to think. Don't commit adultery... Not just because I said so, but because you're supposed to think about marriage biblically. And sexual behavior only belongs in the marriage relationship. So there's commandment and there's confession. Or how about, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's pretty straightforward. But there's a confession. Don't take his name in vain and that implies because his name is holy. And it deserves to be honored and respected. So it's a commandment and it's a confession. And you could go on down the line with the Ten Commandments. Don't murder somebody. Okay, pretty pretty straightforward on that one. Well, implied in that is man's made in the image of God. You can't attack man without attacking the image of Almighty God. And so, I think some of you are looking at me thinking like, I know you said you don't want to be like Watson, but you were all over the place, man. Well, why in the world am I saying all this? Well, here's my point. So the psalmist says, "I Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, or delights in the Ten Commandments, which means he's also saying he's delighting in these confessions or these truths that God wants him to believe that are contained inside of the Ten Commandments. And what is the very first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. You will only serve me as God. Now, you know, I probably don't have to spell this out for you, but you could probably guess what the implication of that is. There's only one God. There's only one who deserves to be served as God, who deserves your honor and praise. There's only one sovereign ruler of the universe. This is the counsel of the righteous. The righteous, they don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but they delight in this counsel, in this knowledge, that God alone is God, that God alone is sovereign. So, now, the counsel of the wicked in Psalm 2. So the righteous rejoice in the sovereignty of God and the fact that God alone is God. But look at what the wicked do. Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And here's their counsel. Verse 3. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the righteous are rejoicing in the fact that God is sovereign over their lives, that God controls them, that God is God, but the wicked are consumed by the very opposite. They're saying, I don't want to be caught up in the bonds of God. I don't want to be bound up in God's controlling cords. I want to be sovereign. I want to be God. And that's not a unique point made by the wicked in Psalm 2. But Genesis 3-5 says it was the desire to be like God that made Adam fall. And Isaiah 14 and 13-14 says that Lucifer desired to set a throne on high to make himself like the Most High and he was rewarded with being sent to Sheol. So These are the only two councils in the world. The council of the righteous, which says God is sovereign and the righteous delight in that truth. And then the council of the wicked, which says, no, let's cast off God's sovereignty. Let us cast off God's control. We are God's now. You know, we are incredibly blessed by the freedom that we have in Christ you know, you can, you're free to eat what you want to eat. You can drink whatever you want to drink. You can enjoy products that are created and provided by the wicked. You can even enjoy many forms of entertainment that come from the wicked, provided that you are mature enough in Christ to receive it with the right mindset. But as we enjoy all of that, rightfully so because Christ has purchased it for us, never forget that all of the world... And all that it produces and all that it does, it cannot help but be fundamentally driven by this philosophy God is not sovereign. They can't help but let it influence everything they do. And whether you can see it or not, it's there. So, does that mean, um, am I saying, hey, let's all be monks? You know, let's all just hide out in here and. because we can't escape it. Well, no. But what we should do is we should approach the world the way the psalmist did in Psalm 1, which is in good times and in bad, in season and out, when you feel like it and when you don't, you run to the Word of God, and you run to the counsel of the righteous, which says, I'm not sovereign, but God is. And then you're going to be like that tree in Psalm 1, planted by streams of water, and in all that you do, you prosper, sustained and nourished by the knowledge that you serve a sovereign God. So, first step, how do we live in a wicked world, was be wary of the counsel of the wicked, run to the counsel of the righteous. God is God and not you. Isn't it funny you have to preach stuff like that? (laughs) My sermon today, you're not God. Wow. You have to preach it, though. Second, the second way we are supposed to live in this wicked world, trust God with the wicked. Trust God with the wicked. So first, we've seen that we should, be, we should have caution when we are dealing with this wicked world. But now, I want us to pause and here, here's a fun part of Scripture. I mean, there's some verses you read and I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. You ever seen like an argument building up where you can see like two people are getting ready to butt heads and you're just kind of in the back just like, just can't wait to see what happens here. Well, that's getting ready to take place. Because now God, these people have been shouting at God saying, we're sovereign. And now God's going to actually respond to them. So. Verse 3, they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, here's God's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. Me too. There are not many times at all in the Bible that God laughs, but as far as I can tell, it's never good. It's always bad. He's never just yucking it up with somebody. As a matter of fact, in the Psalms, God only laughs in two different places besides this one. Uh, The first one is Psalm 59. I'll flip there real quick. So Psalm 59 and 8, we read here that apparently the wicked are rising up against David. And verse 8 says, Every evening uh, they come howling back like dogs. Or that's verse 6. Howling like dogs. And then in verse 5... In response to this wickedness, this is what David asked God to do. You, Lord God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations and spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. And then verse 8, You, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. So God laughing at the wicked here is connected with David asking God to destroy them. Psalm 37, verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. What day? Well, verse 20. The wicked will perish The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish, they like smoke, they vanish away. So in both of these passages, when God laughs, it is like very bad news for the wicked. It is associated, God's laughter is associated with God's destruction of the wicked. And so when we are in Psalm 2 and we hear that God laughs, In response to this master plan of the wicked, alarm bells should be going off in our heads saying, they're getting ready to be destroyed. Judgment is coming. Now, that's not all God does. First He laughs, verse 4. And then verse 5, Then He will speak to them. You know, uh, I teach at a middle school in the, near the Beckley area. And every day at about noon, I'm responsible for lunch duty, me and several other teachers. And during lunch duty, I go down for about half an hour and the kids eat. And at the end of the half hour, all the teachers raise their hand. And when all the teachers raise their hand, all the kids know at that point we expect total silence. You can hear a pin drop. Well, it was about two weeks ago. I'm doing this. In 30 minutes, comes and goes, and I raise my hand. Everybody raises their hand, and it's totally quiet. Well, one boy just decided, "Hey, I'm not ready to I'm not ready to shut up," so he just kept on talking. And I don't know that because I heard him. I heard that because, or I know that because what I did hear was the voice of my coworker, boom, like thunder through the cafeteria. Do we have a problem? <laughs> and uh, so with. Uh, fascination. Some people call it a morbid fascination. I just, I watched from the back and um, I watched as this man with eyes like golf balls bore down on this poor boy. And I watched as this boy couldn't bear to look at him. And so he looked away. And I think on a much greater scale, something really similar is happening here. God, in response to these wicked people, verse 5 says, He turns to them, He looks at them, and then He speaks. And oh, my goodness, is that terrifying. And what He says to them is so fascinating. He doesn't banter with them. He doesn't try to convince them of His sovereignty. He doesn't say, well, here's here's, five reasons why I'm sovereign and you're not, you know. If I could just win them over with a good argument, you know. No. Verse 6. He will terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He looks at them, and he just speaks simple truth. As the saying goes, God just tells them how it is. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't lay out some type of logic. God essentially turns to the wicked, looks them in the face, and says, Oh, you think you're sovereign? Uh, Well, I made my king ruler over everything. Deal with it. Done. No more talk. So what are we supposed to take from these two actions of God? The wicked in their arrogance declare themselves to be sovereign, and then God first laughs at them, and then the second thing is He speaks to them directly with truth. Well, I think we simply take this away. God isn't afraid of the wicked. They don't scare Him one bit. Sometimes we can be afraid. We could be afraid of what they may or may not do. We're concerned with present wars, rumors of wars. Maybe in our own day, it's political regimes or threats of the Taliban. We're concerned about philosophical and moral movements that sweep through our nation. Things such as homosexual marriage, the concept of gender being fluid. So we find all of these things creeping in on our lives. And sometimes you can be intimidated And maybe even frightened about how, like, how do I deal with this, God? How do I confront this? And we can find ourselves rubbing our hands together in fear, wondering what to do. And while it is good to have conversations about, how we are supposed to respond, before we do that, let's just all take a step back and remember this, that God isn't afraid of the wicked. He knows how to deal with them, and He's going to deal with them. And you can rest in that knowledge. You don't have to fix it all. There's so much wickedness. God knows, and God will deal with the wicked. God is not afraid of looking America in the face, China in the face. As a matter of fact, this text said that if all the kings of the earth and all the nations of the earth gathered together and said, we're sovereign now, God would do two things. He'd look at them, he'd laugh, and then he'd start to talk to them and say, no, Jesus is king and you can deal with it. So rest in that. You serve a strong God. You can trust him. So... We said, first, how do we live in a wicked world? Well, first, you are to be wary of the counsel of the wicked and run to the counsel of the righteous. Second, remember that you can trust God with the wicked. And lastly, remember that you were wicked. Remember that you were wicked. Let's move on to our last point quickly. So God the Father has been talking in verses 4 through 6 And now in verses 7 through 9, God the Son speaks. Uh, So we can read this again, starting in verse 7. So verse 6, God says, I set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And in verse 7, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, I will tell of the decree. He's saying, I'm going to explain the details of when God said, you're king now. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten of you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the father tells the kings the simple truth of, Oh, you think you're sovereign? No, Jesus is Lord. And then Jesus Begins speaking at verse 7. He says, Not only that, but the Father said that you are my heritage, you belong to me, and I'm free to smash you like a vase against the ground whenever I want to. So, surely the next thing that comes is the judgment of God. I mean, surely. I mean, do you sense the rising crescendo in the passage? the nations rage, the kings of the earth, they're wicked, they're arrogant, they're lunatics, crying into the heavens, we're God. Then God, in anger, speaks to them and says, no, you're not. And then the Son speaks and says, as a matter of fact, I own you and I could smash you at any moment. So, here it comes, right? The judgment of God. Verse 10. Now, therefore... O kings, what, fear and tremble? No, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. You know, you remember in the New Testament that that funny story of, the sons of thunder, right? James and John. And uh, they see some people maybe not following the way that uh, Jesus taught them and they call out to Jesus and say, okay, well, let's, let's call down some fire on these guys. Just burn them up. And if we're not careful, we're reading Psalm 2 and we're, you know, we're like a son of thunder. We're like, yeah, okay. Let's, let's take care of business here. But that's not what God does. In spite of all of their arrogance, In spite of the fact that they were literally claiming that they are God, God reaches out to them in grace. Now, here's the most important point of today's sermon, I believe. I believe that when, guess what? When Psalm 2 is talking about the kings and rulers of the earth, it's talking about you. Not people like you. It's talking about you, just as John 17 when Jesus prays for all who would believe is talking about you. I think Psalm 2 is talking about you. Here's why. I kind of hid this. I'm sorry, but verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? But then verse 2 says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Well, who are we talking about? Are we talking about the nations and the peoples, which is everybody, or are we talking about rulers and kings? Well, the best answer to this, this little parallel, is that the kings and the rulers are representatives of all the people and all the nations. They are representatives or mediators for the people. The people and the nations rage and plot in vain in the kings and in the rulers. Now, the reason why I say that is this is something that you see throughout the Old Testament. Kings in the Old Testament were viewed as mediators for their people. They stood between God and their people. So one example is 2 Kings 23 and 3. There, King Josiah, it says, made a covenant before the Lord. But then you read that all the people joined in the covenant. That doesn't mean that they all individually went up and made their own covenant after that. But what it means is when Josiah made that covenant, Israel made it in him. And so Josiah is a mediator for the people of God. So... When you read the nation or you when you read that the kings of the earth are saying to God, we're sovereign, not you, that's you. When you read that the kings of the earth say, "Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us," that's you that said that. Not just some king in the Old Testament. That is you. But that also means that when God speaks to these kings in His infinite grace and He says, kiss the son lest he be angry, He's saying that to you. He's saying, kiss the son lest you perish. Look at what He says in verse 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Get this. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Romans 5:19 tells us this, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That is, we had a mediator named Adam who represented us, but because Adam was sinful, we were all damned to an eternity in hell. But Psalm 2 tells us that God called to you in your sin and said, there's another mediator. There's someone else besides the kings of the earth to represent you. There's someone else besides the first Adam who can stand in your behalf. And if you run to him, if you take refuge in him, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So take a moment, Christian, and delight in this fact that in spite of all of your arrogance in spite of your downright lunacy that caused you to shake your fists at the sky and say, I'm sovereign, not you, in spite of all of that, God still called you. And God said to you, take refuge in Christ and there will be no more condemnation for you. I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, may we pray for grace for the wicked, knowing that God has already shown us this grace. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Be wary of the counsel of the wicked, Trust God with the wicked and don't forget that you were wicked. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. We say it a hundred times, but thank you for sending your Son. I don't have to stand before you by myself. I don't have to stand before you with a representative who is not right with you. But I can take refuge in the Son. And I don't have to perish. Thank you, Father, for the constant counsel I can find in your word that you are sovereign and I am not. Thank you, Father, because I can trust you with the wicked